filled with your spirit, and that he'd be just uh, speaking um, to us through you, Lord God. Amen. Amen. Let's read together. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put the words on the screen, but I, I recognize that they're quite small words. So let's read together. From verse 43, I'm in the English Standard Version. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. God, as we come to the word now, we again just pray uh, that you would open our eyes to see things afresh that we may have missed before. Though this is a very familiar passage to us all, we pray that you might, by your spirit, give it a freshness in our hearing today. And that by your grace, you might grow in us fresh fruit unto your glory, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. It's always funny to me when people will, will, occasionally when you meet them, particularly people that are shorter than me, will say, or my, or my grand, for example, whenever I would see her, she'd always say, oh, you're tall, you've grown. And uh, though that may have been true in her eyes, when David comes and stands next to me, you realize that's not necessarily the case. We have many tall people in this church, and we're often made to feel rather short because of their presence. Because it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? Calling something tall or high depends upon one's perspective. In the same way that we have a, a hill in this region, if you're from this area, called the Rekin. We have many idioms in this area like, oh, they're going around the Rekin. You heard of that phrase before. It means they're beating around a bush. They're going around the Rekin. And that is the tallest hill in this area. But when I bring some of my friends to this area who are not from this country, and they're from countries that have real mountains, and I show them the Rekin, they look at it as though it were literally just a small bluff, like a little hill. It's a hillock. It's not a hill. It's not a real mountain. What is that? You know, could run up that in 20 minutes. It's all a matter of perspective. And here, in the Garden of Eden, sorry, Garden of Gethsemane, we'll get to Eden later. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we are being given the proper perspective on human nature. We can often look around and we can see great qualities in one another, can't we? We can observe wonderful things in one another's lives. And that's true across the world. When, when we observe great 
figures of human history. Talking about, you know, your Nelson Mandela's. Talking about your princess dies. We, we, we watched the royal family. The, not the royal family, but you know what it's called, the crown. The royal family is something else that we watch, but that's not actually about the royal family. Um, we watched the crown. What about princess die? You know, a real humanitarian giant, you know. And we can recognise these qualities in other people. Good things that people do. But it's not until those people stand next to Jesus that you realise quite how broken and flawed human nature truly is. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we really are getting the proper perspective on the abilities of man and on the glories of Christ. You know, if ever there was a damning statement about the strength of human nature, this is really it. This is really it in the Garden of Gethsemane. The climax of this passage is found in verse 50, the very last verse that you can see here on the screen. And they all left him. And they all left him and fled. Don't those words just strike a chord in you? Jesus' best friends, those that he had walked with for three years, shared every meal with, those who had literally hours before said, Jesus, even if all fall away, I never will. I'll die with you. And they all left him and fled. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think we have an interesting picture before us. We have before us in the Garden of Gethsemane three types of people. Three types of people. I think serve as an illustration of the greater part of humankind. I think that in a sense, every person fits into one of these three categories that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, we've got in the Garden of Gethsemane, firstly, a crowd of people, an angry mob coming into the garden with clubs and weapons ready to arrest Jesus. We have those in the garden who hate Jesus. They hate him. They're angry at him. They want to do him harm. Secondly, we have another type of person in the garden represented by Judas. Those are those who pretend to love Jesus. Judas professes his love for Christ. He calls him rabbi. He kisses him. But his love was not true. He only pretended to love Jesus. That's the second type of person we have in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then thirdly, we have those who truly do love Jesus. We have the disciples. And of course, this mysterious figure at the end of the passage who flees naked into the night. 
Many believe that this is actually Mark. We don't know for certain that it was, but that's what many infer by this man running off into the darkness with nothing to cover his body. Isn't it interesting? The parallels that we see between Eden and Gethsemane. In Eden, Adam and Eve were naked and they were clothed. After they ate the apple, they felt, well, the apple, we don't know it was that, but after they ate the forbidden fruit, they felt shame and they were clothed by God. And then here in Gethsemane, we have man again fleeing but naked this time, unrobed. So many parallels between these two gardens. The third type of person represented here in the garden are by the disciples, those who love Christ. And in a sense, we might say that all of humanity is represented or falls into one of these three categories. And that's what we'll say for the purposes of this sermon this morning. That's what I'm going to try and illustrate to you. What I do think Gethsemane tells us, what I do think it screams out to us, is that your attitude towards who Jesus is, is literally the most important thing about you. Your belief about who Christ is, is the most important thing about you. I think it was A.W. Tozer, who said, the thoughts that you think about God are the most important thoughts you will ever have, or something to that effect. So these three types of people. Firstly, we have those who hated Christ. Those who hated Christ. Now, that's a very strong word. Hate. Hate. In fact, that word hate, many find so strong that they will say to their children, we don't use that word. We don't use that word hate because it is. It's a very strong word. And often I'll get comments on, I have a particular social media page and we'll post certain clips of sermons. And in one particular sermon, it was a sermon by David Pawson. If you don't watch any of David Pawson or read any of Pawson, I'd recommend him. He was a Bible teacher, but he was a strong preacher. He would say things that were true, but would often cut to the core. How many of you know that sometimes truths can hurt? Truths can cut. Truths can offend. One thing Pawson drew attention to was the fact that God hates. That there is a God of love who also hates iniquity. He hates sin. Psalm 8 tells us this. Psalm 5 tells us this. It's in your Bible. God is a God of love. Amen. But because he's a God of love, he must also hate iniquity and sin. This is a truth about God. Hate is a strong word, though. And can we really say, can we really honestly say that just because somebody denies Christ and denies that he is the Son of God actually hates him? It seems quite a strong-loaded word to use. Because aren't there also people that are just ambivalent about Christ? I mean, that goes for most of my friends. Most of my friends from university wouldn't say that they hate Christ. They just don't really care about him. He 
is not relevant to their life. They're not interested in the claims of the Bible, some book that was written thousands of years ago. What does it got to say to me today? They're ambivalent about Christ. There are others who I know who may respect Jesus as a historical figure. They may say something like, well, he's got many good things to say. Love your enemies, that's wonderful. But I don't believe that he was God. I don't believe he's got some significance to his life that's greater than anybody else's. I love C.S. Lewis's trilemma. He talks about Jesus and how we must understand him as a figure. If you don't know Lewis's trilemma, I will read it to you. It's a wonderful piece of argumentation. Lewis said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I love that. Wasn't it Jesus who also said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Did Jesus really mean that we have to hate our own parents and hate our own children in order to follow him? That doesn't sound right, does it? I think what Jesus was saying was that our love for him, our love for God, must be of such a quality that it makes every other relation seem like hate. Does that make sense? And so I think it's true that those who call Christ irrelevant, those who have no interest in him, and those who call or have greater relationships with humans and value their human relationships higher than their relationship with God, in a sense they do hate Christ. In a sense they do. If we count Christ as not worthy of our worship, as not worthy of our time, then according to Scripture there is a sense in which we, we hate Christ. Now are those in the world who, like the crowd, oppose Jesus and oppose his church with physical violence because that's what the crowd were doing. They were coming in armed with weapons prepared to do physical damage to Christ and his church. And that's the case today. It's easy to forget that in this country where we can gather freely without real threat of physical violence. Violence, but more Christians are martyred for their faith in this day than at any other point in human history. I was recently in Jos in Nigeria, where we, our friends, the Sado family, are from, and this is an extremely real threat to many Christians in that area. 
Open Doors UK published a statistic on their website recently. I think this is from 2019, and it said, attacks against churches have risen an astonishing 500%. 9,488 attacks on churches compared to 1,847 the year before. So there are countries in the world where you're putting your life at risk to actually attend church. And as I've shared before, being in Nigeria really spelt that out to me. In fact, Nigeria is the highest risk country for Christians to get murdered in for their faith. I was in a church where an attack had taken place in 2013 from Boko Haram. Somebody had driven into the church car park and exploded a suicide bomb. And by the grace of God, more people were not killed. But this is a real threat. There are some who still today hate Jesus and hate his church with such a passion that they will seek to take up arms. And it's a real challenge. And the questions that were asked in Nigeria struck me to the core speaking to other Christians about how they're to respond. I said, I'm not sure I personally have anything to tell you. You have my prayers. I can tell you what God's Word says, but I've never had to be through that test. One man stood up and said, what am I to do? Boko Haram have come into my house and kidnapped my children. Are you saying I'm not allowed to do anything back to them? This is a real challenge. And this is a challenge for the church today. What do we do when we're physically attacked? Can we do as Peter did and take up our swords and attack back? Is that okay for us to do? We know the words of Jesus from Matthew's account of this same story. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. J.C. Ryle quoted on this passage, he said, we do well to remember in all our endeavors to extend the kingdom of Christ that it is not to be propagated by violence or by the arm of the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Christian faith advances by the spirit of God and not by the weapons of man. These men thought that they could extinguish Jesus with their clubs, with their spears. They thought that they could crush this little uprising, put it to an end. And many since that night have tried to do the same. And the various emperors of Diocletian and Nero, great persecutions came against the church of Jesus Christ in order to extinguish the message of the gospel, there are more Christians on earth today than at any other point in human history. The kingdom that we are part of as people of God cannot be crushed by human endeavor. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. Those who were sent into the garden that night, they were sent in by the scribes, weren't they? By the Pharisees. They were sent in by the Sanhedrin. Those men also hated Christ, but in their own way, in a different way. Their hatred issued from an intellectual, a theological place, and it manifested 
in the leveraging of political power. They hired men to go and to kill Jesus or to arrest him. They didn't do it themselves. They hired others. And there are those in the world who hate Christ from an intellectual standpoint. They may not ever physically attack a Christian or go and do anything to a church, but the hatred is real. And it issues in mockery, in slander, and in the leveraging of political power in order to do the church harm. And we're seeing that kind of hatred in the UK today, aren't we? We are seeing political parties and individuals lobbying in government in order to restrict certain practices. For example, private prayer outside of abortion clinics is now illegal. You cannot pray. And this is a ground this is a landmark decision. There's also the whole debate around conversion therapy and what that means. We're beginning to see those who hate the gospel and hate the and hate Christ use political power rather than physical to try and extinguish the arm of the church in this nation. So just because there aren't physical attacks happening in this country doesn't mean that everybody's okay with the gospel. There are other ways and other means by which people can hate Christ. But let's move on to a different subject, shall we? The second type of person represented in the garden, this again is quite sobering, are those who pretended to love Jesus. Judas pretended to love Jesus. He chose to betray him with a kiss. Is there a more cynical way to betray a friend than with a kiss? I don't think there is. In the Greek, the, the idea is that this isn't, was, wasn't a peck on the cheek. I think that's often how we imagine, imagine it, that he walked up, okay, you know, this is the guy. In the Greek, this was a passionate kiss, a kiss with feeling. And then he turns and calls him, has the temerity to call him rabbi. My leader, my teacher. This is a false type of honour, a false profession of faith, false worship. And it's sad to say that there are those in the world who take after Judas, who will make a public display of their love and their affection and their honour for Christ, but inwardly they are betrayers. They are false sheep, they're false shepherds, false disciples. It's not nice to have to talk about these things, is it? But this is a reality that's put before us by Scripture. Jesus himself says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, 21 to 23, he says, Not everyone who comes to me and says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come to me. Many. Not one or two. Many will come to Christ on that day, the day of judgment, and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, as, as a pastor, we will often find ourselves asking people the question, do you know Jesus? And this is the most important thing about a person. Do you know Jesus? But perhaps, and arguably, the more important question is, does Jesus know you? Does Jesus know you? 
How do we know that Jesus knows us? We know because we do the works of the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. We know because our lives are being conformed to the image of Christ. We don't know that we're Christian simply because we do great works of ministry. That's exactly the point Jesus is making. That the argument of many on that day will be, look at what I did. I prophesied. I operated in the supernatural. Look at the ministry that I built. I built this big ministry. Look at all these mighty works that I did. But crucially, Jesus says to them, you're workers of lawlessness. Anomia is the word. It's somebody who has no integrity. It's somebody who shows up in front of the faithful and is one thing, but in private is entirely another. There's no law in their life. They do not follow Christ for themselves. They tell everyone else they have to, but it's a different rule for them. Just like Judas, they get to put their hand in the treasury and take out what they like. Jesus says, I never knew you. Not I ceased knowing you, but I never knew you. Very, very severe and sobering passage of Scripture. Evidence of our salvation is not found in the fact that we do great works or that we operate in supernatural signs and wonders. The evidence is found in whether we're actually obedient to the Word of God. Are we seeing evidence that we're being conformed into Jesus' image? Are we becoming more meek? Are we becoming more loving? Are we becoming more forgiving? Less proud and more humble? Those are signs, I believe, that we are walking with Christ. It's the fruits of the Spirit rather than the gifts of the Spirit that are really evidence that we're walking with Christ and that Christ knows us. Jesus said, of course, in John 4 to the Samaritan woman, he said, listen, my Father is seeking such people to worship him. Who? Those who will worship him in spirit, with the heart, and in truth, according to his word. Those two things are important in our worship of God, that it be done in the heart, it be done inwardly. There's a real integrity to our worship. It's not just something we do and perform on a Sunday, but it's something that runs right through our lives, like the writing in a stick of rock. Worship and adoration of Christ is there, whether you're finding me on a Sunday or whether you're finding me on a Monday morning. I'm still loving the gospel. I'm still serving Christ. And secondly, Our worship is to be according to truth. It's to be according to God's word. God's word is committed to scripture. I believe that God can guide us. I believe the spirit can speak to us in our hearts. Oh yes. But our worship of God is not to be driven by what we believe God has spoken to us alone in the silence. Our worship is to be ordered according to what God has delivered once for all to the saints. Hallelujah. Can we say amen to that? Finally, we have those in the garden who truly do love Jesus. Hallelujah. We have those in the world, and many of them, who really do love Christ. And that's the case today. Often in this country, we can feel quite alone, can't we? Because we more and more feel to be the minority in the UK. I have this conversation many times with people. They'll ask, do you think this is a Christian nation? And And I... I have to say, I'm not really sure that it ever was, but, but no, I don't think it is. However, 
We mustn't get into the place of thinking that we are the only Christians left, that we're a dying remnant. I believe just as Elijah was told by God, I have many more that you don't know of. I believe that God has many in this nation that we're not aware of. There is a large faithful remnant left in the West, I believe. And it's to the glory of God. But even in Gethsemane, unfortunately, those who truly loved Jesus didn't particularly cover themselves in glory, did they, in this moment? They'd already been found sleeping when they should have been watching and praying. And now, when the crowd comes to arrest Jesus, they do two more things that perhaps are not particularly great. Peter takes out a sword and chops off somebody's ear, and then they all run away. They don't particularly cover themselves in glory. And I think here we get in a little bit of a picture of the best, really, that human nature has to offer. There's a sincerity there, guys. And in your walk, there's a sincerity, isn't there? If you're a Christian here today, often we can mean well, but we can get it wrong. But that doesn't mean you cease to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that you cease to be a Christian. You see, though they fled from the garden, though they ran away, though they didn't cover themselves in glory, they never once stopped being Jesus' disciples, these men, did they? And this is the story of grace, isn't it? That though sometimes we mean well, we get it wrong, Jesus does not discard us. He doesn't cast us away. But I think here we're getting real evidence of the failures, of the flaws of human nature, that we ought never to boast in our own abilities to achieve great things for God. We've got to remember, apart from him, we can do what? Nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Martin Lloyd-Jones said... I would say of all men and all women that we're weak, very weak. The difference being that sinners do not appreciate the fact that they're weak, whereas Christians do. It's a great strength to know that you're weak. Does that make sense? It's a real strength to know that you're weak because then you'll put on the armour. Then you'll ask God for help. If you think you're already strong, you're actually leaving yourself vulnerable. So though we are weak, we are strong in him. And finally, there's one more type of person in that garden that I haven't mentioned. Jesus. Jesus is the final type of person represented in that garden. I want you to see this. There was only one man in that garden that night that remained faithful. There was only one man who actually did the will of the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Only one man who held fast to the path set before him and resisted temptation to flee. I don't know if you're aware of the geography of Jerusalem, but they ate the supper inside the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples exited Jerusalem on the east side and they went down into the valley, down into the Kidron Valley, in between the wall and the the Mount of Olives. I want to say to you that if Jesus wanted to escape that night, he could have. It was possible. He had supporters up on the hill, on the Mount of Olives, in the villages. He could have run into one of their houses. Deep down in that valley where the Garden of Gethsemane was, it was it was a grove back in that day. There was olive trees. He could have hid. He could have gotten away, but he didn't. He waited there. He knew who was coming to get him. Jesus didn't divert from the path put before him. He was the only one 
that did. I want to say to you, this passage makes clear once and for all that people will let you down. People will let you down. I think it's one of the greatest lessons that Becca and I learned before we came into marriage, before we got married, we knew already we're going to let one another down. You know, it's not just going to be a, like a, a once in an occasion thing. I'm going to let my wife down on a regular basis. Yesterday even, we're putting up the Christmas decorations. She asked me to, I can't even remember what she asked me to do. There you go. <laughs> she asked me to put the baked potatoes on. She asked me to put the baked potatoes on while she decorated the house. Guess what? I forgot. I forgot. I went and did another job entirely. Forgot to put the baked potatoes in. She had to remind me. I let my wife down every day. She lets me down. We're human. Okay? People will always let you down. I'm sorry to say it. And this passage makes that clear. Jesus' best friends deserted him that night. The one time they should have stood with him, they deserted him. And I want to say to you, if you've been broken by people, if you've been let down by people who meant the most to you, so was Jesus, so was Christ, and there's healing for you. There's healing for you. I believe God wants to heal today broken hearts, people who've been let down by people, but also to remind us, brothers and sisters, we will always let one another down. There's never going to be a person who, apart from Christ, who's going to keep their word to you faithfully forever. Ever. He's the only one. He was the only one in Gethsemane. He'll be the only one forever. And that goes for all the religious systems of man. All these great people, great philosophers, great men and women of religion, all of them will let you down, but Jesus never will. He'll never abandon you. R.C. Sproul <laughs> talked about a question that you'll often get asked by skeptics who say, listen, if God's real, then why do bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? You know the kind of thing we're talking about. Why is it that these things, horrible things, happen to people who are upstanding, good people? Sproul famously responded, that only happened once, and he volunteered. Only Jesus submitted himself to the full will of God. He said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. He was the only good man. There are no others. Romans 3, there's no one righteous. There's no one good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Apart from Christ, there is no one good. And Christ submitted himself to the will of God that night. He submitted himself to the path that was set before him in his prayers even, before, as David preached the other week, there was that prayer of, let, let not my will be done, but your will be done. And brothers and sisters, that's the hallmark of a true Christian. Is that though we bring all of our cares and concerns to God in prayer, and we may pray them as Jesus did, passionately, and with trust that he hears us and that he cares, at the end of that prayer, for a Christian, there is a submission to the will of God, to the sovereign decree of the Almighty. 
And that ought to be the way in our lives, just as it was with Jesus. As a final uplifting note, as we finish. The same men who fled from the garden that night, just a few weeks and months later, would be stood once again before the Sanhedrin. You find that story in the book of Acts, in Acts 4. Same guys who ran from the Sanhedrin's men on that night in Gethsemane were stood before them in Acts 4, but this time, it was a different outcome. This time, they did not flee. This time, they were asked not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. What did they say? Is it right to obey men rather than God? Each of those men, bar one, who were in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, went to a horrific death for the gospel of Christ. Something changed in their lives. There was two things, I believe. Firstly, the resurrection. The fact that Jesus was actually risen from the dead. The fact that Jesus came and visited them after he had risen from the dead. That was the first factor that changed, that brought out a dramatic change in their life. The second was the day of Pentecost. When Christ ascended and the Spirit came down upon those men, they were changed. And from that moment on, they did not run away. They didn't flee any longer. I want to say this to you. We've been looking at Gethsemane. That's the best that human nature has to offer apart from the grace of God. That's the best. But there's something more. There's something more in the grace of God. There's something better in the Spirit of God. You must be born again, Jesus said. He's got to give you a new heart, a heart that responds to his word, a heart that loves him if you want to follow him. And secondly, you need his spirit. You need his spirit within you. As we find in Zechariah, the Lord saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's the root of faithfulness, is to be born again. As Christ was resurrected, you must also be. There must be a new heart inside of you. Secondly, his spirit must be upon you. Those two things make a radical difference in somebody's life. And it's no longer their ability. the worship team to come out. Father God, we thank you that you've given us perspective today. And you've shown us that there's only one man that we can truly trust in. Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray today that if there are any here in this room or watching again on the live stream, that Lord, they would be encouraged today to put their full trust in you. Not any longer to trust in themselves or other people, but to put their trust and hope solely in Jesus Christ. Also, I, I pray, Lord, that if any today 
have done what the disciples did and have run from their calling, fled from Christ, backslidden into old sins. Lord, I pray that by your spirit you would waken them to life again, draw them back to yourself. Moreover, Lord, if there are people in the room that have been let down and hurt and betrayed by people, Lord, I pray by your mercy you would heal us today. In Jesus' name we pray.